Not to paint everything with a broad brush, but I think where we differentiate ourselves is we choose to take the high road as an employer and we choose to work with high road clients who have nice work environments, who pay fairly, who treat people fairly, who have good supervisors and good personnel to interact with. And then we always try to do the right thing in terms of our employees. And one of the most concrete examples I can give is I find myself lobbying almost every day in some situation or another for worker pay. We now live in an on-demand economy. Netflix brought us thousands of movies on demand. Action! Cut. DoorDash delivered restaurants to our front door. And Uber made it possible to get anywhere in town with one click. This is rapidly changing our expectations and how work gets done. We're now one click away from an accountant in QuickBooks. They just put CPAs in their software. A doctor with Teladoc. Now let's take care of that fever. Okay. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Each episode, we'll get insights from operators, thought leaders, executives, and experts who are embracing technology to remove the friction in the way work gets done. Welcome to Work On Demand. Every year, over 800 tech and staffing leaders gather in Dallas for the SIA Gig E-Conference. We sat down with seven of them. Here are their stories. I'm here today with Jason Radisson, the CEO and founder of Shift One. The thing, Jason, that had me reach out to you was sort of the story you have on LinkedIn, which if you look <laughs> at your, you know, sort of your history, like your job history, the mission of improving economic opportunities for others. Talk to me a little bit about that write-up you have on LinkedIn and your upbringing, and we'll get to talking about Shift One and the gig yeah. economy, but I think that's a very important thing to ground in. So just tell me a little bit about you. Yeah, 100%. So as you alluded to, I grew up, I was a child of a single mom, of a 16-year-old single mom. The topic of work and uh, self-empowerment, self-realization was, was super close to me the whole time growing up because my mom and I, we both, we kind of bootstrapped ourselves. My earliest childhood memories are going through GD and community college and kind of things that my mom was doing. And then teacher college. And uh, I used to get passed around between the professors. I used to go to classes, uh, whatever, if my mom didn't have childcare at that moment. And then uh, she was working jobs after school, between classes, those kinds of things. So, you know, we had this experience of uh, of work throughout. And um, I worked in every kind of school. So for me, it was always sort of this very full schedule because I was trying to earn some money and go to school. And every chance I got really at higher education was I saw it as really my own empowerment in a way to, to try to, you know, get myself to a better standard of living and, and kind of out of poverty in the way that I had grown up. Let's talk about uh, just the gig economy uh, in general before yeah. we get into shift sure. one. You have a deep background in like growing and scaling uh, businesses. Yep. When you think of the on-demand space, do you think there's a, a sector or industry that it's not going to touch? You know, I, I, it's a great question. And I think almost any job can be broken into smaller jobs that can be done on demand. I think it, it has to be balanced with the skills that a person's developing as they might be working different gigs and on-demand things. So I think it depends, but I think fundamentally gig work can touch almost every part of the economy. Now you started your journey in at McKinsey, you were a consultant. Yeah. Uh, you got into software. I was just, I'm going off. Yeah, yeah. I was totally. Publicly totally. able to find. <laughs> totally. You got into software and then you got the gig bug. 
Yeah. So, so tell me about that journey a little bit. Yeah, and yeah. Everybody ends up in sort of this space where technology and work, uh, yep, you know, sort of mush. But tell me a little bit about your 100%. journey and how you got here. Hundred percent. So, when I was a consultant, um, I worked in in labor topics, kind of not surprisingly. Um, more, if there was tech, it was more um, approaches and capabilities, and in particular, applied math. Uh, so a lot of my consulting work was how do you merge two companies' workforces together? How do you redesign processes in big workforces to make them more efficient? I was a consultant in a phase in the economy where people had to drive efficiency. It wasn't the best economy. Um, you mean like the one right now? Yeah, you know. <laughs> Not 2008, you know. You're acting like it was so long ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. It was the last recession. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So in those periods, it's a classic consulting thing, you know. Consultants make money in a great economy and they make money in a terrible economy just doing the opposite kinds of things. And so that was, my consulting experience was that. It was process improvement, OPEX reduction, the classic things that McKinsey is known for in the down market. A lot of in Latin America, I really like traveling and I enjoyed that part. I enjoyed the international dynamic and dealing with clients in different cultures and these workforce problems. And Latin America had all kinds of challenges, not that we didn't have them in the U.S., but everything was even bigger and more exacerbated. So that was my experience that then as I got deeper into sort of technology and there were new technologies coming out, I found it so fascinating that you could deploy software in so many other ways. And that's really where I started to learn automation skills. So I worked on some e-commerce platforms, you know, developing different algorithms and, and different approaches that were all automating, essentially automating people's e-commerce processes. And then I think it came full circle when ride sharing was really kind of the first big gig application that was out there that truly went global. It truly touched a lot of blue-collar processes and a lot of very fundamental sort of frontline work, not the whole economy, but at least, you know, sort of the passenger and, and delivery parts of the economy. And for me, it all came full circle and it was all in your mobile. And so, you know, that was, uh, I dove in uh, and, and really I haven't looked back. I've really been working in that same space. That's kind of how it works for most of the people who start to see the opportunity. Yeah. And it's because it's got work. Yeah. It's got technology. It's got a lot of things that are very interesting and complex, but are somewhat solvable, as you've seen with, with Uber. Yep. When, when you first went to Uber and 99 Taxi in, in Brazil, you show up there day one, you plug in, and like what surprised you about just this new, you know, you press a button and you get an outcome sort of world? Yeah, yeah. I think what the technology does, you know, or did in a very unique way was it created automation sort of from a fresh sheet of paper. A hiring challenge in Uber would be, gosh, we're launching a city next week. We're onboarding 5,000 drivers this week. And you just, you had software and industrial approaches that the world kind of hadn't used before in the same way. Um, I, I, can't ima I can't imagine any company you know, prior to Uber, maybe some others that you'd be able to onboard that many people to do right, anything. Right. Um, yep. And I, I'm imagining most of those processes. <clears throat> I I just onboarded to Instacart because a good friend of mine sure. uh, works at Instacart, and I was trying out their onboarding process for him. Seamless, yeah. uh, and never talked to a human, and I was ready to go to Instacart. 
except for I couldn't find a job because they were all booked. But that's... <laughs> 100%. 100%. Yeah. So if you look at the onboarding uh, capabilities, if you look at scheduling and the idea that you can dynamically schedule tens of thousands of people in real time, just fantastic automated approaches, highly scalable approaches, and, and things broke, but the tech was just there. And so I think it was sort of a, a, a time to really see, call it some, a lot of the, we were sort of building on top of what e-commerce had done. You know, it's a similar, similar, not similar thing in terms of like running a website and running a supply chain of items into that website and matching buyers and, and sellers and whatnot, you know, Ebays and, and Amazons of the world. But this was this this real-time thing that could take you out to eat or get you to the airport or whatever at the push of a button. And, and that was really fantastic. When I went to 99, it was just a fantastic time and opportunity in the world because, you know, what we had kind of figured out is not all cities were, were made the same. In Uber, I was responsible for Nevada um, and, you know, launching, running Las Vegas and, you know, some of the smaller cities is a fantastic experience. I, I saw that you were doing Vegas, right? Yeah. I, I'm yeah. sure there's some stories. There's a Vegas story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and some things that'll stay in Vegas, but, you know, in Brazil, we figured out that not all cities were put together the same way. And some of the best cities in the world for the gig economy were Latin American cities. And they weren't even the, the largest, you know, kind of capital cities or biggest markets. They were more of the secondary cities. I think a similar thing happened with Didi in China. There were a lot of Chinese cities, sort of secondary cities, you know, and there, as in Latin America, we're talking two to five million people, two to seven million people, you know, but those cities were structured in such a good way. There was a super ready supply of gig workers, and there was a rising middle, upper middle class that had money, but not time. And it just, the market really came together in those cities. So Brazilian cities, secondary cities, Belo Horizonte, Porto Alegre, cities like that, Salvador, they were, they were profitable. And if you look at what had been happening in sort of the gig economy, almost nothing was profitable. So they were these really bright spots. And plus you had the kind of social impact that you had because, you know, these were cities that, you know, had just slums and favelas and dramatic parts of the country that just didn't have any economic opportunity. You bring up a good point, because when people talk about the gig economy, there's a belief that there's it's kind of two sides of the coin. Some people believe that it provides economic opportunity to, to anyone who's willing to work. Yeah, the platforms have some challenges, and it, but if anybody's willing to do whatever the work is, there's opportunity. And others say that it takes advantage of workers. How do yeah. you balance the two? You know, and, and this will transition us right into yeah. to shift one. But right. I think it's an important question uh, to think about. How do you frame that in your own mind based on your experience? Great question. And um, I think part of it is we've been talking about or we've been conditioned, I think, particularly in the U.S. to think about there's there's been like a, a dual track. On the one hand, we're hearing about workers where corners have been cut. And we're seeing regulatory disputes around those cut corners and whatever. And then on the other hand, we're hearing about gig workers who want maximum flexibility. I think what people really want is to maximize their opportunity and, and their economic advancement. And it doesn't have to be at odds with what the company needs. In the US, we haven't really put that together in a win-win situation. It's been better for the companies, for the gig companies than it has been for the gig workers. 
and, and, and a lot of that in in the stuff that I read and people yeah. I talk to is around healthcare benefit. And we have a very unique, right. messed up system here in the United States where your healthcare is right. tied to your work, which makes gig work, you know, just fundamentally harder uh, to sustain uh, because you have to worry about healthcare. Hundred percent. Well, we do, you know, in the U.S., we do have this zero hours employment model. You know, when we were starting out with shift one, we decided not to cut that corner. We decided to put our workforce on as, as W-2 workers. We still have flexibility uh, in terms of hours. You know, we do. We have an hourly, you know, I said the zero hour model in the U.S. And yet we're able to, we pay payroll taxes. We subsidize or pay for health insurance. They have, our workers have access to health insurance, have access to other benefits. So it felt like it was a corner too far. You know, I think I said, I think the gig platforms have, obviously when you're growing really fast and you've got other things, I think you get to a certain point where you just can no longer make that case where that workforce is your workforce. And, and, you know, I no think- No longer it, a nameless plat technology platform. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, now we look at sort of where we are in the economy where there's less and less talent available and people are having to dig digger, deeper and deeper. And really, it's kind of on all of us, employers, platform operators, to treat people the right way so that they want to be uh, participating and want to grow with our platform and want to be with us long term. Now, I love talking to founders because, you know, working at McKinsey, working for Uber, I'm sure is very different than, than starting a, a, a company. <laughs> Tell me a little bit just quickly about... When did you decide to take the jump and say, I'm going to be a founder? And then you did something that I see some founders do. And I've always wanted to ask somebody, why yeah. stealth mode? So just those <laughs> two things. I sure, sure. Um, so for me, I had the idea and I had the vision that the manufacturing logistics market in the U.S. was this monstrous place that, you know, if we just brought technology and a different approach to it. We could create better living standards. We could create better employment opportunities. We could, we could create a better supply of labor for the US. That's where we started. You know, as we started working with different clients, we got into Latin America and we started to expand beyond that. But that was fundamentally, I started the company to help improve people's lives. And I wanted to go at a very kind of professional career path, one that had a lot of rungs on the ladder, one that people could elevate themselves up into a full-on middle-class existence, going through a couple of different career steps and some training along the way. And when you kind of look at the world, that's generally not, you know, the entry level delivery. There are, there are a few different roles in, you know, kind of classic gig marketplaces where we think about things where it's where it's more casual. A lot of those roles don't have the career rungs. Uh, so I wanted to to really kind of write what I had seen as a lot of the shortcomings. Uh, that was that was the founding moment and kind of my inspiration for starting the company. And why stealth mode? Stealth mode is, you know, it I think sounds it, like a game. Like it, it sounds like it's, <laughs> I, I talk to founders and it's like, oh, you're in stealth mode. Right, so, right, right. Well, we stealth mode allows you to work with a with with a with a group of your buddies on a side project while you're figuring it out. And and you know, it may be that in our particular case, we were bootstrapping, so we were only 
investing back into the company. We weren't, you know, taking paychecks. So it really kind of had to be on the down low while we were putting that project together. Um, and then once we felt like, okay, we see where we have product <laughs> market fit, <laughs> right? Like we have our clients lined up. Um, we have a path to fundraising. We know we have a company here. Okay, let's all go. We'll come out with the with the company, with the brand. We'll start to commercialize, um, you know, and we'll all go for full time. And and we did that in 2020, right before the pandemic. Like so that was January, January 2020. Yeah. Now let's talk about shift one. I think I you, you spoke a bit about why the blue collar market and yep. and that. What's been the biggest challenge is as you approach, you know, you've you've got this talent, you you've you know created some technology. What's what's the biggest challenge when you approach, you know, your customers to try to deploy that challenge? Yeah, I think I give you two answers because because we're attacking it two different ways. One of the ways that we help our clients is we've become a supplier of, you know, semi-skilled, skilled labor when they can't find people. So, so give me a scenario where shift one shines. Yeah, um, a manufacturing plant that's its workforce is down 20% and, you know, they're underproducing in units in pounds or whatever their, their output is. They've got lines down or short shifts because of it. And so we'll get engaged and we'll start supplying workers. So, we're, you know, we'll onboard the workers. We'll, we'll handle as much of that kind of worker startup process and putting in great new teams to help fill out their workforce. So that's, that's the kind of outsourcing BPO model. And, and, and we do that. It's 80% of our business. And, and our business is now transforming because as the economy evolves, what we're seeing is Talent is thinner and thinner. I'm living in in the state of Minnesota, which has the lowest unemployment in the country. It's just over one percent. There, there just aren't there aren't workers hanging around waiting for jobs. And so, you know, you're essentially you're poaching workers. You're finding workers who just happen to be in that five seconds of transition. A lot of the technology comes into play. Hiring automation. You want to have it be frictionless and fast, and get them transitioned and on our platform and out working. But more and more, we're putting our technology into our clients and our clients are using our technology, using our gig tools with their own workforces. And then they have the flexibility to also work with external workers. So either our workers is that the or- is, is the onboarding and just making it seamless from, it, hey, I'm interested, I'm on the floor. Yeah. And we have attendance and productivity tools as well. So the client can kind of holistically manage their blue collar workers, whether they're their workers or whether they're our workers or whether they're working with three different staffing agencies uh, in addition. When, when you look at the future of, of Shift One, there's this really interesting thing around the valuations of, of software versus the valuations of, of marketplaces. Yeah. When you th think of the future of Shift One, is, is the software you're creating the future of shift one, like, is it going to shift more into software in the marketplaces? Hey, I need to have, you know, have control of this automation to make the software better. Or is it really just a, a managed marketplace? I think it is, it's 80% software, 20% labor. I think that's where the world is going. I think we're, we're in a period, we've been in this period where we've had a shortage of, of labor and particularly manufacturing logistics, particularly in the entry level positions. 
you know, not to mention healthcare and other frontline workers. It's amazing how many nursing uh, marketplaces were born in uh, 2020. Yeah. Absolutely. Say, hey, I'm going to apply technology because <laughs> yep. like, we're trying to save lives. There's a pandemic and like yep. everybody pivoted to like, hey, and I've got a nursing startup. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. A lot, a lot of those, those, those same catalysts. And so I think, and, and where, where we're headed as a company as we evolve is, to be the, the, the automation platform to support our clients and all their high volume workforce needs. So whether it's managing high volumes of workers, whether it's hiring high volumes of workers, whether it's managing different staffing vendors, and our automation will be a, a key part of that. Um, that's, that's where the company's going and, and for select clients. And, you know, I think particularly, you know, we get into these situations where a client is really up against the wall. You know, I really need a hundred people next week. Can you guys do anything? We jump in and we help them. Uh, but I think more and more the software is going to be our main business. So let me understand this. I own a manufacturing plant. I'm mm -hmm. surrounded by people, you know, an ecosystem of staffing companies that say I can help. Where are they falling down in your technology approach or gig model? Mm -hmm. Like, how's that work? Where's it? Where is the? Because I think it, it speaks to this idea of, hey, there's a challenge with traditional staffing. Yeah. That technology and a new way of thinking can help solve. 100%. How is Shift One able to get the workers, but the staffing industry that's been working for this with this company for 25 years is not able to get the workers? The backdrop is we're in a market where there just isn't talent available. You know, it really is. It's definitely a seller's market, not a buyer's market. And if you look at staffing traditionally, there's relatively low barriers to entry. You can start a staffing agency with a payroll provider, with a workman's comp provider, and maybe with a recruiter and, and a small office to work out of. I think what in the traditional approach the branch has a network of workers that they work with. And I think what happened in the pandemic is just those workers were either staying home, those workers decided to retire, a number of things happened. So the experience we had in engaging with our clients as a new company is the clients would say, I have six different staffing providers and I'm only ever, they're all bringing me only a handful of people a week. You know, I'm 200 people behind and I'm getting six people a week from three different staffing. Takes providers. a lot of work. And, I've got you. And, and people are turning out. So I'm just never going to get ahead. I'm never going to catch up. I think there's a lot of validity to the approach of, gosh, I would always empower a small business that and the entrepreneurial spirit of, of starting up a small staffing firm. I think where it gets really challenging, where some of the gig market tools come into effect is it's everything from online marketing and SEO and sort of what it takes to be able to acquire an inordinate amount of candidates, regardless of the market conditions. There's a lot of, we have a lot of proprietary tech and, and techniques around that. And so generally we might go into a market and we might be pulling 10, 20,000 applicants a week from that market and then automatically processing them down. So, you know, we're able to show up with a couple hundred applicants a week that are already entirely processed versus, you know, if I'm a two-person staffing agency or a small branch, I've only got my, I might have a little bit of software and, you know, a little bit of automation in some of that. But for the most part, I'm trying to manually process 
out of my database and out of my social media posts and things, I'm not able to get industrial scale. scale. So. It's, it's really interesting. And I hadn't thought about the gig economy being born or the layers of things on top of e-commerce. You, know, you figured out yeah. physical yeah. supply and payment and some of those things. Then right. you put onto it onboarding and some like, it, it's interesting. I had never uh, thought of that. I want to cover one last thing because I know you got to run. You say that shift one is bringing an ethical approach to blue collar work and having read your statement and even talking to you today, what does that mean? When you say it, it's now ethical and it wasn't ethical, what's not ethical about it today and how is shift one going to help with that? hundred percent. So I wouldn't say not to paint everything with a broad brush, but I think where we differentiate ourselves is we choose to take the high road as an employer and we choose to work with high road clients who have nice work environments, who pay fairly, who treat people fairly who have good supervisors and good personnel to interact with. Um, and then, you know, we always try to do the right thing in terms of our employees. And one of the most concrete examples I can give is I find myself lobbying almost every day in some situation or another for worker pay. You know, there are things we can do internally in terms of benefits and support we can give for workers. One of the hardest things to sort of navigate when you're doing outsourcing is what's the fair price for labor in that market for that job. And that's a place where we're able to step in and we sort of, as a platform, you've kind of got to make it right for everybody. You know, you don't last long if you're only benefiting one participant. And so, you know, for us, that means trying to find a really good compromise on wages um, and working conditions and schedules and, and things like that. I think that's the thing that people don't understand in the gig economy, workers have choice, especially now. But yep. you're not going to get, if, if you're not a good person to work with or work for, even in a freelancer or, you know, uh, independent work situation, people aren't going to come work for you. You're not going to get the best. And that's, that's yep. only accelerated or made very apparent in gig platforms. Because I know like if you're a bad Uber, uh, if I'm a bad Uber rider, I don't get picked up as People, fast as if you're a <laughs> exactly. great, there's something in the algorithm. Exactly. I was sitting yeah. with some friends and we were comparing our Uber scores and we we're also comparing our Uber experiences. And it was really interesting how everyone around this, the lower your score was as a writer, the more you were like, likely to say that, hey, it takes a little longer for me to get my ride. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, hey, Jason, I want to thank you a ton for stopping by. That was a great conversation. Um, I wish you the best and I'll continue to follow the great work you're doing at Shift One. Thanks so much, Paul. I really appreciate it. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Thank you for listening to Work On Demand. This episode has been produced by Scott Walden at Great Scott Voice Media, with additional support from freelancers on Fiverr, Upwork, and Fancy Hands. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we'd appreciate you rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, or simply telling a friend about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode that explores the world of Work On Demand.